Gracious Father, you are King of kings and Lord of lords, and we praise you. Lord, we praise you for the greatness of what you're doing and calling out a people for your own possession to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And Father, we thank you for uh, the word preached this morning, um, expositing how it is that you build your church and how it is that you are building your church. And we pray, Lord, that you would use this time to, um, to edify your people, Lord, to explain some truth from your word. I pray that you'd give us understanding and wisdom. Lord, we know that you give generously to any who ask without finding fault. And Lord, we pray that you'd give that to us. For your glory and for our joy in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you would uh, open your Bibles to First Chronicles. Uh, we're going to start with chapter 10 this morning. <clears throat> so last time we looked at chapters 1 through 9, and uh, I don't know about you, but it was a little frustrating for me that we didn't spend much time in the text. Uh, I think the longest segment of verses I, I read probably was about five, and uh, full of tongue twisters and, and probably not all that beneficial to read that. Um, through publicly, but um, I think we got some good things from it, uh, and I think it's not on the, the website and the app yet, but if you missed, it should be up pretty soon here. Uh, this morning, uh, right away, starting in, verse, in uh, chapter 10, we'll get into some narratives, so we'll be reading longer portions and looking directly at the text. <coughs> uh, I, I had hoped to get to chapter 10 last week, because uh, we had set up so much contrast in the genealogies between David and Saul, uh, and chapter 10 is the defeat and death of Saul and his sons. Uh, so if you would bring to mind uh, the contrast we had set up between uh, Saul and David. Uh, starting with verse 1, now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines closely pursued Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle became heavy against Saul, and the archers overtook him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell on it. So if you remember the contrast that's been set up here between Saul and David, it's pointing to a difference between God's choice and man's choice. Uh, Saul and Gibeon, where Saul is from, are seen as man's choice. Gibeon is where the, uh, the people had chosen to put up the tabernacle. Uh, David is God's choice, a man after God's own heart, and Jerusalem is God's choice, the place where he will make his name to dwell. Uh, so although God had certainly gone along with man's preference and, and was willing to be worshipped at Gibeon uh, and was willing to make Saul the king, uh, that was never God's uh, preference. Um, he certainly allowed it as part of his providence, but uh, his preference was for David in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so we see in the end to Saul's life, his choice to take his own life, uh, the continuation of that theme that uh, Saul is exerting his choice over God's. Uh, back to the text, verse 5. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he likewise fell on his sword and died. Thus Saul died with his three sons, and all those of his house died together. A couple things in uh, verse 6 there. Um, his house, the word, the Hebrew word is bait. And uh, it's the same word uh, that David uses when he wants to build God a house. Um, so, so there's a contrast there again between 
Saul's house, which is, is doomed here, and the house that David and his sons would build for God, and the house that God would build for David and his sons. Um, and, and also, we talked last time about in, how inheritance is a key theme. Uh, Saul is left here without an heir. And uh, in that culture, and especially for a king, an heir would have been of critical importance. And, and Saul is left without an heir, at least according to the chronicler, his house died together. We know that there were some sons who survived when he tried to set himself up as king, and, and one, Mephibosheth, who became uh, a recipient of a lot of grace from David. Um, <clears throat> back to the text, uh, verse 7. When all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So uh, what had happened to this point is, is Judah had uh, taken these cities. And uh, these men were Judahites who had, who had come to these cities and taken them. And it was an advance into the promised land. And we see with uh, Saul's demise, with the reversal that Israel's seeing at this point, that they're actually experiencing reversal in the, the acquisition of the land. So all of the promises and the positive things for Israel are looking in doubt here uh, with Saul. And again, it's a, it's a consequence of the people pursuing their own way, wanting a king for themselves as the nations have. One thing I'd noticed, uh, by the way, in my study, but didn't mention last week, uh, in chapter 2, verses 42 to, four, to 55, uh, the chronicler is at least in part emphasizing the founders of various cities. Um, in that section, wherever the English reads father of, um, the, the Hebrew can be taken uh, founders of or leaders of. Um, and in this way, the chronicler might have encouraged uh, the post-exilic readers to expand their ge geographical hopes to include all the territories once occupied by these Judahites. So, so there's the land theme. He's encouraging uh, the Israelites to do the things that, that will get them blessing, that will expand their territory. And the implicit message is the way not to do that is to be like Saul. Um, so you're going to see this general theme of Saul despised the word of the Lord, and David and his sons who were like him followed the word of the Lord. They did according to the word of the Lord. Uh, verse 8, it came about the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent messages around the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the house of Dagon. So we see just shame for Saul in his death. You know, not only did he take his own life, fell on his own sword, but uh, his, um, what does it say, his, his head uh, and his armor put in their, in their idols' temples. Uh, and this is probably an allusion to uh, 1 Samuel 5, where the Philistines had captured the ark in battle, and they took it to the temple of Dagon. And Dagon, actually, his head and um, extremities fall off, and this is something that happens repeatedly. Um, so the Philistines may have in mind here something in the way of retribution, uh, that their idol uh, had suffered this indignity, and now the Israelite king would suffer it also. Uh, verse 12, sort of a, a note to balance that out, uh, showing Saul some mercy and honor in his death. All the valiant men arose and took away the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons and brought them to Jabesh, and they buried their bones under the oak in Jabesh and fasted seven days. 
so Saul was still the Lord's anointed, and you see David's appeal to that repeatedly in 1 Samuel. He was not about to, to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, and there's still honor for Saul in his death, even though uh, it, it is so ignominious. Uh, verse 13, so Saul died for his trespasses, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it. So this is commentary that the chronicler gives us that we don't find elsewhere in scripture, and it's sort of setting up, I think last week or two weeks ago, I, I pointed out how the chronicler's sort of overarching concern for the book of Chronicles is proper worship. Uh, and, and I think by that, you know, the commentators that have sort of led in that direction, uh, worship includes everything we do, you know, the whole idea of vocation, um, you know, in all that we do, we're to submit to the word of God. And, and it's not just in the liturgical forms that Saul was disobedient, uh, it's also in, in everything he does. Um, and the contrast is with David, who, you know, certainly sins, but he's always repentant and always submitting to the word of God, and it's in, it's in all areas of life. So we're going to see this contrast, and I think this is the, the Chronicler's overarching concern, that in worship, which is all we do, we submit to everything that the Lord requires. And uh, just a note there in verse 13, uh, Saul asked the counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and that's something that was specifically prohibited in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 9. So just in a detail like that, the Chronicler is pointing out that, that Saul was quick to disobey the letter of the law. Verse 14, instead of uh, inquiring of a medium, um, he should have inquired of the Lord. Uh, it says, and he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him. So the Lord killed Saul, even though Saul killed himself. You see the Lord's uh, sovereignty there. And turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Uh, so you see the word that the Lord has spoken through Samuel that David would be king. God is accomplishing by killing Saul, even though Saul falls on his own sword. Certainly the Lord was um, in charge of the events that were taking place there. Uh, interestingly, Saul's name means he who was requested. Uh, so, you know, although Saul's end is uh, fitting and tragic, it's a reminder of the necessity to trust God for our salvation and not to set our eyes on our own strength. And that's what the Israelites were after when they, when they wanted uh, a king, and they wanted a king like Saul, one who was of significant stature and one who would uh, compare favorably in appearance to the kings of the nations that surrounded them. Uh, we know from Samuel that uh, Saul was humble and that he had stature among the people. There's really a positive picture painted of Saul uh, when we're first introduced to him in 1 Samuel, uh, but what we see through his behavior throughout is uh, that he lacked the one thing that truly mattered, and that is a heart for God. Um, once again, the chronicler is not giving a lot of detail when he says that uh, Saul died because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. Uh, he's assuming our familiarity with everything that Samuel tells us. And there's a list there on the outline, uh, point D, of some various passages uh, where we see that Saul did not keep the word of the Lord. And just a brief survey of those. Uh, when Samuel was delayed in 1 Samuel 13, Saul disobeyed the Lord by going ahead and performing the required sacrifice on his own. Uh, when his army defeated the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, he disobeyed the Lord by refusing to put to death all of the people and animals. Uh, he kept the Amal Am Amalekite king alive, and uh, Samuel ended up hacking him to pieces uh, in 1 Samuel 15:33 to make a point about the importance of following God's instructions without exception. 
Uh, and then in the incident which, with, uh, which the Chronicler references here at the end of chapter 10, Saul sought out a medium to get information instead of relying on God and his word. Uh, now, one might object on that last one that Saul actually did inquire of the Lord because in 1 Samuel uh, 28, verse 6, it says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Um, so, but still, the chronicler is able to say that Saul didn't inquire the Lord. And, and it brings to mind James chapter 1, uh, where James writes, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, the man, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. And of course it's also James who writes uh, in, in chapter 4, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And what we see of Saul throughout the accounts of him is that that, I mean, this defines him. He is the man uh, who asks and does not receive what he asks because he's unstable. Um, you know, that's, that's something you get clearly from 1 Samuel is Saul's instability and his refusal to submit to uh, the word of the Lord. <clears throat> he does not glory in his humiliation. He, he tries to lift himself up. And David's attitude is opposite. He, he's repeatedly glorying in his humiliation and giving deference to Saul as the Lord's anointed. Uh, before we uh, get to chapter 11, um, again, I want to just sort of point out the overarching themes for today. Uh, let's see here. Uh, point two on the outline. First is that we're going to see a significant messianic theme, and I think we touched on this a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're going to see that in a couple of ways. One is uh, David coming into Jerusalem uh, and starting to assume sort of a priestly role along with his kingship role. Um, and even before we get to that, the anointing of David as king, which of course is looking forward to the ultimate Davidic king, who is Christ. Um, another thing we're going to see weaving throughout is uh, the chronicler is, in, is encouraging the people to have hope for the future and combining that with uh, uh, retelling God's faithfulness in the past. And, and that support of, it sort of makes an equation that equals a basis for trusting and obeying God in the present. Um, so that's, that's a concern of the chronicler is that uh, the people post-exile, which is his audience, these are the people who have come back uh, from the exile to Babylon, uh, would seek faithfulness. Uh, and then broadly, like I said, keeping versus disobeying God's word. We're going to see the benefits of keeping God's word exactly as he intends and, and the, uh, the reversals that come with not doing so. So, chapter 11, David's anointing. Verse 1, Then all Israel gathered to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. And uh, although we see a lot that looks forward to Christ, uh, this has uh, echoes of looking back to Adam, to the garden. Uh, Genesis 2, you may recall just from the, the uh, language there. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So one of the things we're going to see a lot in, in Chronicles, I think, is um, typology, where uh, you see precursors of realities that are coming or, or echoes of past realities. And echoes is probably a better word for most of this than types, uh, because these aren't necessarily verifiable types. You know, there's, there's nothing that indicates that it's a certain connection to Genesis chapter 2 when, when the people say your bone and your flesh, but we can see it as an echo, and I think it's helpful in, in terms of a biblical theology to see the, those threads of continuity. Uh, the important thing to remember, and I think I've stressed this before uh, when we talked about um, the temple as uh, a type for the church, is there's an immediate meaning in the text. You know, these are, are literal events, literal people, uh, and, and they actually happen. So there's a, there's a primary meaning to all those things, even if they relate to or, or comment on or, or even um, symbolize other truths. Um, so first we want to get the primary meaning, and then we can look at, at how they might be useful as types or echoes. Um, and that gets to what I was talking about with Genesis 2, this looking back. Uh, and if we, if we see some connections or possible echoes there, uh, what it might bring to mind is um, something nuptial. And, and we know from various scriptures that God sees Israel as his betrothed. Uh, so there could be an echo here of a union between Israel and its head. David is the head of Israel, and this is sort of a, a covenantal ceremony of, of uniting Israel with her head. Um, could also be uh, uh, an echo of, of the first priest king, uh, who is Adam, uh, and, and sort of a, a continuity thread that the chronicler would be tying in to uh, the early times when, when the the heir, the firstborn, was the priest and the king uh, by right. And we looked at that a little bit a couple weeks ago. Uh, another thing we see here, and this is the first time we see it in verse 1, is all Israel is gathered together. Uh, the Hebrew word for the assembly is kahal. And uh, that word, <clears throat> although it's not used here, it's used in um, chapter 13. We'll see that a little bit later. Uh, it's always translated ecclesia in uh, the Septuagint, which is the New Testament word for church. So we see here in all likelihood early echoes of, of the church, of the calling out. Um, and actually, I was going to get to this a little bit later in, in 13 when that's used, but it may be instructive now. Um, Matthew 16 is uh, one of the only two places in the gospel where Jesus uses the word ecclesia. Um, he also uses it in, in chapter 18, talking about church discipline. But where he uses it, uh, the description is uh, uh, really familiar with the imagery associated with the chronicler's depiction of David and his son Solomon in the temple. Uh, it's the, the church, as the people of God, is described as a new temple and a new kingdom founded on a rock um, like the temple, built on the Son of God. Um, and and the, the text there from Matthew 16 uh, should be familiar to us. I also say to you that you are Peter, 
and upon this rock I will build my church, Ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, uh, so you have the kingdom theme, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So in this early time of the Ecclesia coming to David, uh, to, to be united with him, you, you may see some early echoes of the church with her head, Christ, and him saying he will build his church on a rock. Uh, verse 2, in times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel, and the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people. So again, we see here that even when Saul was king, David was God's choice. Uh, and he was acting as a shepherd to Israel, even though he hadn't been anointed king already. Uh, some echoes here. Uh, uh, it could be a, a mosaic reference when the text says, uh, my people, you shall shepherd my people. That's the same language used in Exodus 3.7 and uh, 6.7, talking about Moses' relationship to the people. Um, we see shepherd language, which can point back to Moses and forward to Christ, the good shepherd. Um, and uh, this imagery may also be a more subtle connection to the exodus and the conquest of the land. Uh, the people's claim when they say it was you that led out and brought in Israel recalls the language of Moses' commissioning of Joshua to lead out and bring in the people so that Israel would not be as sheep which have no shepherd. So that text in Numbers 27 and this text share um, two pretty significant components. Verse 3, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Now verses 1 through 3 are almost a verbatim repetition of 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 3. And the only difference is according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. So again, the chronicler is being pretty intentional about weaving that commentary in that David and the things concerning David are according to the word of the Lord, uh, as opposed to Saul who went against the word of the Lord. Verse 4, and this is where David uh, starts to set up Jerusalem as his capital. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is, Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. And uh, so this gets back again to God's choice, Jerusalem and David. Um, but it's interesting, this is the first mention that the capital, or it's not even mentioned that the capital would be there, but, but David seems to have this thought that he needs to go to Jerusalem. And there's nothing so far in the text or in the Old Testament text that precede this event to indicate why David thinks he needs to go to Israel and make that his capital. Uh, so that question needs to be asked. Uh, does David receive specific instruction from the Lord that the temple is to be built at Jerusalem? He does, but that doesn't happen until later. Uh, and we'll see that in chapter 21 when David is at the threshing floor of Oren the Jebusite. And God tells him that's where his temple is going to be. Uh, one co or commentator says, there is no record even of David seeking God's guidance on the question of his capital. Instead, David is presented as simply understanding that his royal destiny includes the establishment of Jerusalem as his capital and the restoration of the Ark of the Covenant. So we have to look elsewhere 
uh, and, and again for kind of echoes um, indicators in, in, in other texts as to why David might have this in mind. And uh, the most likely is found in Genesis 14. And you can turn there if you want, uh, starting with verse 17 in Genesis 14. Speaking of Abraham, then after his return from the defeat of Cherilaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, or this is talking about the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. So you see the combination key, priest and king uh, in Jerusalem. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. And it's from Psalm 76, uh, verse 2, that we know that Melchizedek's Salem is the same as David's Jerusalem. Uh, the text there reads, His tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. So it's the same place. But we really know that David identifies himself with Melchizedek because of Psalm 110, uh, which, by the way, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. So, again, we see the messianic theme uh, with David's life and with David coming into Jerusalem. Verse 4 from Psalm 110 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, now, I want to draw our attention to two points here. First is that David does exercise priestly functions to a significant extent, uh, even though he is the king and that he's a Judahite and not a Levite. Uh, we're going to see that develop, especially as David goes on to move the ark to Jerusalem. But we should also remember what we considered last time, and that is that the priesthood is still at this point lawfully reserved for the family of Aaron and priestly functions for the tribe of Levi. Levi. Uh, the Hebrews writer in 7 is uh, very clear on this point. Uh, he, he says when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. Uh, there has not been a change in law to give the priesthood to David. So we know for sure, and we also know because the chronicler gives such an importance to uh, the Levite uh, priesthood that uh, this priestly order, the order of Melchizedek, cannot have meant the, the eclipse of the Levitical priesthood, but instead the royal priesthood of the Davidic king evidently existed alongside the Levitical priesthood. So David performs these priestly functions, but he does not supersede or usurp the Levitical priesthood. And it's interesting, it kind of goes the other way here. Um, although the text always has an immediate point, in Psalm 110, the point is largely messianic. And it's just like Peter in Acts 2 uh, says what David says in Psalm 16 is not about David because he died and did see corruption. It was really uh, ultimately and immediately about Christ. And the same is really true about this with Melchizedek because David is maybe an echo of a Melchizedekian uh, king and priest, but he wasn't truly priest. The, the, the Levites were still the priests. The true Melchizedekian king and priest is Christ. Now, that said, it is interesting to note the historical context of the individual who serves as priest and king in Jerusalem. And here we see, again, I think we talked about two weeks ago, how one of the chronicler's main themes is all of the nations will be blessed uh, through Israel. 
He spends a lot of time in his genealogies on non-Israelite nations and non-Israelite individuals who interacted with Israel in her history. Uh, he doesn't even get to Israel until like 30-some verses in uh, where he first mentions Israel. Uh, and again, this coming into Jerusalem harkens back to uh, some scripture. I mean, we see that in, in Genesis 14, but um, there's, there's extra scriptural evidence that, that Jerusalem was considered a religious, an important religious site and that the priest and king function was exercised there historically. And it also evokes the pre-Levitical hereditary priesthood of the, the period of natural religion. It wasn't just Israel that had that uh, tradition of the priesthood and the authority or kingship going to the firstborn. It was other uh, Near Eastern cultures that had that also. Um, so, so David coming into Jerusalem as priest and king has broader appeal than just for Israel. Uh, back at the text, uh, verse 5. The inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So we see the will of men coming up against the will of God and the will of God prevailing. Now David had said, whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became chief. Uh, that's just a little indicator, and we're going to get into a chapter and a half where David uh, his strategy to bring together the mighty men, all the men of renown and the men of, of incredible ability, uh, and how he forms a camaraderie with them. And this is a, a, a little preview of his forming a camaraderie. Whoever strikes down a Jebusite first shall be chief and commander. So he's not lifting up himself. He's lifting up the men who are with him. Verse 7, then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, it was called the city of David. He built the city around from Milo even to the surrounding area, and Joab prepared the rest of the city. David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And uh, that's a pretty significant statement, it's, and it's constant for David. The Lord seems to always be with him. And again, there's, there's sort of an indication of a temple theme or a priestly theme. Where the, where the Lord is is where his temple is, and, and again, David is clearly God's choice. Uh, now with David in possession of Jerusalem, the kingdom was given a centrally located capital with the best natural defenses in the area. Mount Zion, the city of David, became a citadel that symbolized God's eternal care and protection of his people. And of course, this is a theme that continues uh, into the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, where John writes, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Um, so God being with David in Jerusalem is, again, a theme that carries all the way through Revelation and the Davidic king and priest. Uh, now we turn to David's mighty men, which takes up uh, uh, the rest of the chapter 11 and all of chapter 12. And uh, we're not going to go verse by verse here. Um, these are more like the genealogical lists, listing one man after another. So we're going to sort of do a flyover. Uh, but we will look at the broader significance of why the Chronicler spends so many words on this subject instead of reading all the details from the text. Um, as we've already noted, uh, actually from the very first verse following Saul's death, all Israel is with David. And uh, we get that in verse 10. Now these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, 
who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So you see again, there's all Israel, and it's according to the word of the Lord. Uh, Through what follows all of the talk of the mighty men, uh, it becomes increasingly evident that this is an important theme for the chronicler. All that David accomplishes, he does in consultation and cooperation with all the people. And it's interesting, um, in light of Keith's message that he's preaching this morning, which if you go into second service, you'll hear that in a little bit, uh, as God builds his church, it's kind of similar to what happens with the mighty men here. Uh, they, they come on board with God's mission through David. And, and as he builds the church through the gospel, unbelievers come on board with God's mission through Christ and work. And, and that's, that's uh, the point that Keith is going to, one of the points Keith is going to be making. And, and you see incredible blessing of the work uh, in the, the stories of the mighty men, things that should be humanly impossible and are humanly impossible, they accomplish because they are building God's kingdom to his glory. And uh, they have a, a, a messianic priest king who is uh, leading them in that and, and wants to engage them and wants to engage them not for his own glory, but for the glory of the Father. Um, also, what we see in the detailed list of the men around David is that the kingdom is more than one man. These men are shown as making considered decisions of allegiance and self-sacrifice. It's evident that for the chronicler, their help is indispensable to the king and to the kingdom. And this may get to some of the chronicler's motivation on spending so much time here. He may want to communicate to the members of the post-exilic community that the fate of the nation does not lie in just the hands of a single leader or a hoped-for messiah. Um, If the people will step up and do their part, their own zeal and devotion to rebuilding the kingdom will be remembered. And this is instructive for us, too. I mean, I think a lot of times, especially as a Reformed church, we think Christ is building his church. I can't get in the way, and and I can't, in my self-determination, build it for him. And that's true. Self-determination is going to get you nowhere. But we still have responsibility. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and I love this, um, God's grace, and he's talking about how... uh, He was a Pharisee and persecuted the church, and he's unworthy to be called an apostle. He says, but God's grace wasn't wasted on me, for I worked harder than any of them. And and you just know from his tone and from what he says elsewhere that he's not talking spiritually. He worked in tangible, observable ways, and it was hard work. It was was blood, sweat, and tears. It was was real toil. Uh, But he balances that out by saying, yet not me, not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Um, and the same is true, I mean, clearly from these um, descriptions of the mighty men, it couldn't be self-determination. And, and for us, it's good to keep a balance. Always have uh, one eye on dependence and always have one eye on, on working harder than anyone. Uh, that we, how blessed we would all be if we were able to say that of ourselves, I worked harder than any of them. <clears throat> um, just a survey of the text, one thing in... Uh, Verse 14, they took their stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great victory. So even in the, the conquest of the mighty men, the, the chronicler is being careful to, to show how God is the sovereign hand at work. Uh, part of the listing and description of the mighty men is to show that David was a leader who had gained the full confidence and support of the best men in Israel. Uh, Verses 17 through 19 relate an interesting story to help us understand, in part, how it was that David built such camaraderie with his men. Uh, David had a craving, verse 17, and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. 
So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. So you see the, the commitment. He's already inspired this loyalty to himself. Uh, these men are risking his li- their lives just to get David a drink of water. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These, these things the three mighty men did. So you can see a king in David's position. He has the full support of all the people. He knows that, that God has, has lifted him up as king. He could go, well, it's fitting you would risk your lives to bring me a drink from, from the water that I want to drink. I'm going to go ahead and drink it. But he doesn't do that. In humility, he, he defers to the value of their lives. And again, showing that the, the, the other men, not just David, um, are important in God's plan for the kingdom and essential to its accomplishment. Uh, chapter 12 continues to talk about um, conquests and, and the involvement of mighty men. Uh, and this is a unique list in the scriptures. These, uh, these men that are detailed here uh, supported David even when he was still in exile because Saul was still king. Uh, so again, the chronicler is showing that, that David was the true choice for Israel uh, even when Israel's choice was on the throne. And the, the scene is already set for God's choice to become Israel's choice when Saul dies. Uh, we see that in verse 1. Now these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul the son of Kish. Uh, verse 2, uh, some of these men were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. So even Saul's own family was recognizing David's uh, legitimate call as the leader of Israel. And, and that's why the people are able to say uh, in their anointing of David that even when Saul was king, David was the one who led out and brought in Israel. Uh, one more interesting observation from this portion of text is that it seems to include a theme of div- divine assistance. The word help is used repeatedly. Um, we see that in verse Uh, One, the mighty men who helped him in war. Verse 17, come peacefully to help me. Verse 18, peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. Verse 19, they did not help him. Verse 21, they helped David. And verse 22, came to David to help him. Uh, Probably the most striking and noteworthy of all of these, and this is, by the way, that's an unusual repetition of that one word in the Hebrew text. Uh, Probably the most striking and noteworthy of those is is verse 18, which tells about uh, Amasai. Then the spirit came upon, or the literal is clothed, Amasai, who was the chief of the 30. And he said, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. Then David received them and made them captains of the band. So here we see two evidences of where all of David help, David's help truly comes from. Uh, we see it in the Spirit, uh, whom, of course, J- Jesus later calls the helper. Uh, and the Spirit comes on one of David's men. And we see it in what Amasai prophesies, that uh, God, it is God who helps David. And again, this is reminiscent of Moses 
uh, from when God took the spirit who was upon him and placed him upon the uh, 70 elders from Numbers 11. Uh, and, and that seems to be what's going on here is the spirit that's so abundantly on David, like the text says, God was with David. And that's just before it gets to this description of the mighty men. Clearly, some of the spirit that's on David is being put on at least some of the mighty men to accomplish God's, God's goals. Uh, the chronicler goes on to give a list of all the places that the mighty men came from. Um, it kind of follows his genealogy, and he wants to show that it was all Israel in great numbers that came to help David. Verse 22 says, For day by day men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. So clearly God by his providence, you know, many of these tribes, there was factiousness. There was, you know, of course, the, the tribe of Benjamin was where Saul was from. They join up. It's, it's unanimous. They're unified. They're one. Um, just sort of a, a summary, uh, it's men from... Verse 19, from Manasseh. Uh, verse 24, from Judah. 25, from Simeon. Then from Levi. Uh, and, and that's a break. Three verses in a row, you see an emphasis on the priesthood. Levi, the Levites, Je Jehoiada, uh, leader of the house of Aaron, and Zadok, also a Levite. Um, so there's an emphasis on the, uh, the priests there. Uh, there's Benjamin, Saul's kinsman, specifically noted. Um, Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Naphtali, the Danites, Asher, and also from the other side of the Jordan, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 38, again emphasizing uh, the unanimity that's here. Uh, they with a perfect heart came to make David king over all Israel, and all the rest of Israel also were of one mind to make David king. The text specifically notes that even those who stayed behind, that wasn't because they weren't supporting David. Uh, he, there, was, there was full support. And uh, again, perhaps um, eschatological or messianic overtones in verse 40, there was joy indeed in Israel. And, and this, of course, points to the joy at the consummation of, of redemption. Uh, Zephaniah 3.17, with which the chronicler's audience would have been familiar, he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So that theme of salvation and blessing, the messianic theme, uh, is woven in here as well. <coughs> Excuse me. On to uh, chapter 13. Uh, so we see that in addition to knowing that he was to make Jerusalem his capital, David also knows that uh, he's to bring the ark back. And, and uh, it's something that was neglected, as the text says, during the days of Saul. Uh, something that David knows needs to be central. Uh, it was central according to the law and according to the practice uh, in the Pentateuch and uh, something from which the people have strayed. But David knows that to worship properly, which is, again, the, one of the chronicler's major concerns, the ark has to be there. Uh, it says, verse 1, Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. So getting many counselors something we know is, is biblical, and, and building camaraderie with, with the people, and, and perhaps uh, an echo of the contrast again with Saul. Saul, instead of consulting uh, the leaders when he couldn't get a word from the Lord, consulted with a medium, and, and David consults with the leaders. 
Verse 2, David said to all the assembly of Israel, and this is the word that's translated ecclesia, said to the ecclesia, if it seems good to you and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands that they may meet with us. And let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly, again the ecclesia, said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And we see several things here. One is that David's first official duties in First Chronicles concern the care for the ark. And this is in stark and explicitly stated contrast with what happened during Saul's reign. David's desire to bring the ark to Jerusalem to be near the center of God's people shows his concern for God's presence to be with his people in his kingdom. You know, the ark isn't just a symbol. It's where God actually made his presence to dwell. So thus its importance in David's mind. Secondly, uh, what David is doing, he's doing together with the whole nation. Again, the, the kingdom is more than a single man. And thirdly, um, verses 2 and 4, where it reads the, all the assembly, uh, is the translation of the Hebrew word kahal, uh, which is the word I mentioned earlier, translated ecclesia in the Septuagint. It occurs twice here and then not again until chapter 28. Uh, so God's presence coming to God's ecclesia, his gathering, his church, his called out ones. You know, this is not the church. This is still the Old Testament, but it's, it's a precursor to the church. And of course, we know from 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 and other New Testament passages that the church is where God has made his temple. It's where he's made his presence to dwell. Um, so there's, there's perhaps some early uh, hints at that here. Verse 5, So David assembled all Israel together, from the Shehor of Egypt even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who is enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. So, specific there, in terms of why the ark is important. It's where his name is called, he is enthroned above the cherubim. That it is God's presence, not just symbolic. And that may indicate why what's about to happen is going to happen. They carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down before, because he put out his hand to the ark. And he died there before God. This is probably the most significant thing we're going to look at today, uh, I think, just because it, it captures the essence um, so succinctly of the most important theme for the chronicler, and that is uh, exact um, submission to what you know the law requires. And Israel was the keeper of the laws. They, they, they had the law. They had God's word which told specifically how the ark was to be handled. From Exodus 25, You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet, and two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side. 
You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. And then from Numbers 4, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. They're in direct violation of what God says to do with his ark. And, you know, I think a lot of times we can read the story of Uzzah and think it's extreme. Or we can read the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 and think it's extreme, you know. God was like that then and he's not like that now. And that's not the message we should take from it. The message we should take from it is the seriousness of God's holy presence and the fact that he continues to make his holy presence to dwell with us. And, and it's interesting, this was pointed out uh, in one commentary. Verse 8, David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. And, and if you think about how we often are neglecting individual commands or precepts that we know are right, and we come anyway and go through the forms of worship. We go through the forms of, of singing. We go through the forms of hearing the word and agreeing with it verbally and, and aren't submitting to, to something we know is right to do. We're blaspheming the Lord in, in terms of that holy presence that he makes to dwell among us. Uh, and, and the seriousness we see is in, in how the Lord breaks out against Uzzah. And that should be a warning not to let our, uh, our good forms of worship become ritualistic and something we do because it's, it's exciting and it feels good and we've been taught to do it and everyone else around us does it. Um, true worship is a matter of following his commands and, and we know that we love him if we follow his commands. And, and it's an interesting contrast. We're not going to get to uh, chapter 15 where they go about transporting the ark again until next week. But the contrast is palpable between the carelessness with which it's done here and the care and concern that they show for the Lord, for the ark, for the Lord's word when they do it the right way in chapter 15. <clears throat> it's also interesting to note that the Philistines had carried the ark on a cart pulled by two cows in 1 Samuel 6. Uh, they had learned that there was something fearsome the, the ark had accomplished making the arms and, and head fall off from Dagon and had actually given them tumors. They were suffering because of the presence of the ark. So they knew that there was something to be feared, something true about this ark. They didn't know how to handle it. They put it on a cart and they weren't judged for that. They were sending it away, but they didn't have the law. They weren't keepers of the law. So we see how those of us who, who have the law, who, who have the knowledge of the Lord's requirements, are required, there's a higher requirement of us. If, if we do the same things that the, that the unbelievers do, there's a higher standard and a stricter judgment for us. Uh, the lesson seems to be that the worship of God, and certainly where he has given instruction um, in the worship of God, there is no place for novelty or personal innovation. Uh, we should always be looking to scripture for how the Lord requires uh, us to live and to worship. Hebrews 12 says, our God is a consuming fire. 
And that's not something to be taken lightly. I remember Andy Newton, when he taught uh, 2 Samuel, I think it was the first I'd ever heard this, Uzzah was mistaken to think that it was worse for the ark to touch the ground than to touch his hand because the ground was not rebellious. And that's, that's true for any of us. Verse 11, Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah to this day. It's best not to give too much significance to the word angry as it could easily be translated and probably is better translated frustrated. Obviously, David had intended for the transfer of the ark to be a great blessing for his kingdom, but his plan had failed or his plan was frustrated. Um, Probably more significant to pay attention to is verse 12. David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? Uh, If we're going to find significance in David's demeanor as it's described here, We should find it in the newfound fear described. There is humility and a sense of repentance in his question, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? If if David took God's holiness lightly before, he now clearly is unlikely to do so again. And like I said, we're going to see next time how careful David is and how carefully he follows the law when he again decides to move the ark to Jerusalem. Verse 13, so David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. With this we see that God did not remain angry with David and the people. He's pleased with their response and begins to bless them again almost immediately. This theme continues into chapter 14 where the chronicler singles out three events from David's life to show that the Lord has blessed his kingdom. Uh, First, uh, in verses 1 and 2, he recounts the tribute paid to David by the surrounding nations. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent messengers to David with cedar trees, masons, and carpenters to build a house for him. And David realized that the Lord had established him as a king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. So whereas Israel was suffering defeat and shame under Saul, it's now experiencing exaltation um, and, and significance under David. Second, he points out that God makes David fruitful in terms of giving him more sons and daughters, verses 3 through 7. Then David took more wives at Jerusalem and David became the father of more sons and daughters. It goes on to list them. And then finally, he highlights David's victory over the enemies of God's people. Uh, Skip ahead to verse 10. David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines, and will will you give them into my hand? Then the Lord said to him, Go up, for I will give them into your hand. So the contrast again with Saul, he inquired of the Lord and got no answer. David receives an immediate answer, and it's that victory will be his against the Philistines. So they came up to Baal Perazim, And David defeated them there, and David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, they named that place Baal Perazim. Uh, And that's interesting. Linguistically, broken through is the same term used to describe God's action against Uzzah. So God is not ultimately against David, but against his enemies. Um, And against anything that's contrary to his law. And, And of course, the Philistines are totally contrary to God's law. Um, and David was, or the way that they were trying to transport the ark was at that moment. Either way, whether God's going to break through in salvation or he's going to break through in judgment, um, it's, it's noteworthy, and it should turn us in the same direction, fear of the Lord and gratitude. <clears throat> uh, 
verse 14, David inquired of God again, and God said to him, you shall not go up after them, circle around behind them, and come at them in front of the balsam trees. So receiving very specific wisdom from God where Saul uh, was denied. Uh, verse 15, God will have gone out before you. So God's, God's sovereignty in the battle. Verse 16, David did just as God had commanded him. So he's learned uh, to be submissive to God's every command, to the detail. And then verse 17, then the fame of David went into all the lands and the Lord brought the fear of him on all the nations. So we see again the weaving in of that theme that, that it's not just for Israel. Israel's meant to be a blessing to the nations and we'll see that as we continue on in First Chronicles here. <coughs> so just to recap uh, some of our, our themes or, or overarching concerns for the day. One is the continuity of the scriptures, uh, and Chronicles is heavy on this because it is a commentary on the rest of the scriptures. So that's, I think, why, why we point a lot to, to echoes or types uh, when we're looking at Chronicles. Um, for David, looking back to Adam, um, Melchizedek is widely held to be associated with the line of Shem, the righteous line from, from Noah. Uh, Melchizedek, Moses, Joshua... So there's pointing back in terms of continuity and then forward to Christ, the messianic aspects. Secondly, the assembly, the kehal, the, the precursor to the New Testament ecclesia, uh, that all the people are together, there's unity, there's, they're of one mind, of one purpose to accomplish the setting up of David's kingdom. And then finally, our overarching concern of the critical aspect of keeping uh, versus disobeying God's word and keeping it to the letter, the contrast between Saul and David and, and the way Uzzah, um, the way it went with the Lord breaking out against him because of the carelessness with which they were transporting the ark versus the way David, after that, decides to submit carefully and, and gains this fear of the Lord. Um, so we're going to go ahead and close in prayer, and then uh, Matt's going to come up and give announcements. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, for its richness, its depth, for its usefulness and its sufficiency. Father, I pray that uh, you would uh, help these truths to sink into our hearts, um, the importance of submission, Lord, the importance of coming to worship properly, the, the fearfulness of your presence and the joy of your presence, the joy of your working of your salvation in your people and your sovereignty. I thank you for the comfort that comes from knowing about that. I pray, Lord, that you'd work these truths in us as we go about our weeks, and Lord, that you'd bless us to be... Um, Workers in your kingdom to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.